Good morning, everybody. Good to be back with you. Uh, thanks uh, to Paul Trulock for, on such short notice, uh, pinch hitting, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for me last week. Um, some of you might know if you were around last week uh, that uh, my wife got the, the flu uh, pretty badly over the weekend. We ended up having to make a, a trip to the emergency room on Sunday morning. And so, Paul Trulock, uh, we should give him a round of applause. Saturday night, we reached out to him. I know he loves that. So thank you, brother, for doing, uh, for do, for pinch hitting for me. Thank you guys for your reaching out and asking me, us how we're doing. We are doing better. Uh, not 100% yet, but definitely doing better. Glad to be back with you. Um, by the way, if you have some kids who are in grades one through five, they can go ahead and be dismissed. <coughs> If I cough a little bit today, uh, I am better, and so uh, it, I sound probably a little bit worse than what I am. Uh, but again, thank you so much for all your prayer and support in that. We are today hopping back into a book that we have been in and out of for quite some time. We're actually going to finish Romans uh, this year, no, it's a, and pretty soon we're actually going to finish Romans. So we are, we are going to be taking a look at Romans 13 through 15 over the next several weeks. <laughs> oh, this is going to be irritating. For you too, right? Romans 12 uh, was all about our relationship to God, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to one another in the body of Christ, and also even our relationship with our enemies. So as we turn the page from Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 13, we're going to now find uh, Paul speaking about our relationship with our government. Now, I I have to admit at the very outset here that... um, this is one of those things that for me is uh, not the thing that I am most passionate. Like in, in all the course of scripture, there are things that I come across that I teach on. I'm like, man, I can't wait to teach on this. There are other things that I come across and I'm like, yeah, it's okay. And then there are other things that I come across. I'm like, man, I wish I didn't have to teach on this. That's just kind of like our, right? You, that happens in everything. Anybody who's taught for a while, there are those subjects that really resonate with us. There are those subjects that maybe don't resonate as much. And in full disclosure, this is kind of one of those subjects. Like not too long after I was saved, I, I kind of uh, found myself embracing the mentality of a particular group of people that, uh, and that were, were called Anabaptists. Anabaptists were part of the religious tradition in, uh, here in the United States. They were people who believed in believer's baptism. That's why they're called Anabaptists. That meant to baptize again. They were not people who believed in infant baptism, but they believed in the baptism of those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that... <coughs> how did these show? Somebody, did somebody come up here? How, you must have liked that. Like, that was stealthy, Emma. Wow. You felt like the coffee wasn't going to be as good as the water? Yes, probably true. Thanks, Emma. I appreciate that. That was, I literally had no idea that you did that until I looked down. It's amazing. So the Anabaptists, one of the things that kind of characterized their faith as it developed was they were people who, who kind of said this, like, you know what? We live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we're not going to kind of like get very involved in matters of the state. They, they acknowledged that it existed and everything, and, but they kind of took some stands uh, uh, against it, and they kind of like almost, they kind of separated from it. 
And, and, and that kind of resonated with me in my early faith. Like it, it seemed like that was right. Like there would be that, 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 that kind of a mentality was, and I'm not, I'm not selling that today, by the way, this is not what the talk is about at all. I'm just giving you a little bit of insight into my background as it relates to the, this subject matter. And so with, that was kind of early on in my faith. And I, and I probably grown, uh, not necessarily completely to the 180 degrees away from that, Maybe I have a little bit of that leaning, but I, I've come to, to grow in my understanding about the, about the importance of the function of the state. And one of those passages that really is, is, is all about that is the one that we're going to look at today. So if you have your notes, you can flip them over or you can open up your uh, Bible app on your phone. Or if you brought an actual Bible with you, uh, good for you. Uh, and you can open it up to Romans 13. I'm going to read all the way down through uh, verse 7 of that chapter. So Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, going all the way down to verse 7. Let's start there real quick. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those, who, to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Let's pray for just a second. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, dig into it today. And we pray, God, that as we do that, that you would be our teacher. And that what we take away from uh, the, the, uh, the word today and our time today uh, together, God, is not that we would just have some information about our relationship with the state as Paul presented it to those first hearers many, many years ago, but instead, God, that would actually change the way in which we leave here today, that we would be different people as we interact with your word. We pray all of these things and that you might receive all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly, what happens and who lives in this house is a very divisive thing, isn't it? For some of us sitting here today, uh, you might, d- d- depending on what your political persuasion is, you might either have affinity for or disdain for the person who is currently in, sitting in the White House or was in the White House last, right? We all recognize that. I'm not here to answer those kind of questions today because as you could see from the seven verses I just read, there, has, there is nothing to do with anyone in, re- in relationship to party or political orientation or political persuasion. That has nothing to do with Paul, what Paul shared. And by the way, just so you can have a little bit of a context, as Paul is writing those words, it is very safe to assume 
there are zero Christians involved in civic government at the time. Most likely none. If there were any, they would be the vast minority. We're talking about one or two or ten. And I think it's safe to assume there's probably none. So when he writes to the believers in Rome many, many years ago, he's writing to a group of people that in a sense you would say have zero friends in civic government. And so when we think about that, when we think about the, and I'm going to use the word the state over, and I'm not referring to the state as it refers to the way we use it in terms of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, that kind of thing. But the state and that, the, the role of a particular political, you know, uh, uh, governmental entity. Okay. So that's how I'm referring to the state this morning. And so we're talking about what happens at the U.S. Capitol building. We're talking, we're talking about what happens at the White House. We're talking about what happens on the floor of the Senate, all those kinds of things. Of course, we have the, we live under the authority of the, our Supreme Court justices and all of us know what it's like to have that wonderful person walk up to our car and say to us, I'm sorry, sir or ma'am, do you know how fast you were going? Anybody had that happen to them in 2020 yet? Let's see. Yeah, that's always that sinking feeling of seeing that red and blue light in your rearview mirror, right? Most of us have had it. This idea then, and and, and that's kind of the, the first thing to say is this. When Paul is referring to the, the and he uses this phrase, these, this phrase, governing authorities, it literally means the powers that be. And he is not referring to people, but positions. It's a very important distinction for us. And if you, you can pick it up as you, as you read through the text. You can see he's not referring to an individual. He's referring to the role in which they serve. And he is, again, speaking to people, understanding that the church and the state have very different roles, but that Christians have a responsibility to each. Maybe that was summed up best when Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. His emphasis here is on personal citizenship. He's not going to write in these seven verses about the the dynamic of the relationship between the church and the state. That's not what he's addressing. He is here addressing issues of personal citizenship. And like I said, just to remind you, he's writing this at a time where those Christians are living, for many of them, in hostile situations. And if it's not hostile yet, it is about to get very hostile because depending on the, on the writing, the timing of the writing of Paul's letter, it is either now or will be very soon that they are living under the reign of an emperor known as Nero. And when the Christians lived under the reign of an emperor named Nero, a Roman emperor named Nero, it would be very extremely difficult and adverse circumstances, even to the point of their own death. And when he writes to them, that being the context, the first thing that he says to them is, let everyone submit. Now, it's an interesting choice of words that Paul uses here. He hesitates, he doesn't use the stronger word, which is the stronger biblical word is the word obey. He doesn't use the word obey, but he does use the word submit. And submit is not a word to sneeze at. You've heard me teach on it before if you've been around uh, Calvary. It's the word hupotasso. The word hupotasso was a Greek military term. It meant to arrange in troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. 
And so because of that being its technical usage in the ancient world, it came to mean a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. There's an inter- interesting time in the, uh, in the New Testament in which this is used in the life of Jesus. So Jesus is 12 years old. And as 12 years old, of course, he's living under the authority of his parents, right? His earthly parents, Mary and Joseph. In Luke chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Every year his, that is Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Again, not to uh, talk about well, how did they lose their, their kid, their 12-year-old kid, Jesus. They were probably traveling in a caravan. It would have been, they might have thought he was with some extended family members, all of that kind of stuff. So anyway, he's missing. Thinking he was in their, in their company in verse 44, they traveled on for a day and they began looking for him among the relatives and friends saying, where have you seen our son? Nobody sees him. When they did not find him, verse 45, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Because remember, he lives under their authority. He understands that. Why were you searching for me, he said, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. And then, very interesting phrase that Luke uses. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was hupotasso, obedient to them. He was submissive to them. He was not, he, was, he lived, he lived in, a, in a manner where he recognized their place of authority in his life, even though he understood that in the reality of things, his father was God. But he was submissive to their authority in his life. It's a word that we also see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where talking about the relationship that we should have with each other in the body of Christ, Paul writes to the Ephesians and says in Ephesians 5, 21, submit yourselves to one another because of your reverence for Christ. So throughout this, this is the tone. Paul sets the tone at the very outset. Now he's going to come back to this as we wrap up when he talks about our relationship with the state. But he sets the tone at the very outset here as he writes to those Christians says, the first thing that I want you to remember in your relationship with the governing authorities, the powers that be, all of them, the magistrates, the, the officials, the, everybody that's involved in the, the, in, the, in the operation of government, the legislators, the civil servants, the law enforcement officials, the, and for, in, in our world, you know, social workers, politicians, even those, yes, who work for the IRS, all of them, we live in submission to them. We live under them. Remember what that word is. It's a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. That is irrespective of somebody's political persuasion, the orientation, party affiliation, or anything else, right? Remember the context in which Paul is writing these words to those ancient believers. Zero friends, 
in the governing authorities. And he's saying, let everyone, let everyone submit to them. So the first thing that we, get, that we uh, should be obvious to us is that there is a certain authority that the state has. That authority is not something that is, that is given to them by us, but in fact, Scripture seems to allude that it's an authority that is given to them by God. In, in Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God. Look, at, look in your notes again real quick and through, through these verses. Look at all the references to God in verse, two, verse 1, the one we're at right there. No authority except from God. Later on in that verse, and the authorities who exist are instituted by God. Verse 2 then, look at that. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. And then in verse 4, and we're going to look at this in just a, in more detail in a couple of minutes. In verse 4, twice, and also in verse 6, they are referred to as God's servants. So the point that Paul is making here is that this, these, uh, these powers that be exist at God's command under his authority. All legitimate authority then is sourced in the person of God. That's, <laughs> excuse me. That's the point that Paul is trying to make to the Roman believers and to us today. And again, Paul is saying this at a time in which there are no followers of Jesus serving in this role. And so, though at times it's very difficult for us to see a particular world leader, whether it's, and by the way, remember that there does exist government and well, like we live in the context of the United States of America, but this is a worldwide sort of declaration that Paul is making, right? Because these, these words are for believers in Africa and Asia and Australia and of course North America and South America, Central America, all over the world. And we know, of course, that not every leader in the world, not every leader in our country, not every police uh, 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 law enforcement official, not every politician, not every postal worker, not every person who serves in a place of authority is one that has an admirable character. That's reality. But Paul, again, makes this sweeping statement that there is no authority except from God. I can't change that. That doesn't mean what that individual does pleases God. But the role of authority as established in the state is sourced in the person of God. That's the point that Paul wants us to make. And so that determines the attitude with which we relate to them. So I would encourage you and remind you, and we're going to get there in our relationship with it, to understand clearly that the authority of the state is something that comes from God himself. That sometimes can be very difficult for us to, remi- to, to remember, but God, it, 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 but, but it's good that we do. In fact, Paul, when he talks about what these, uh, what these uh, servants are, he actually uses the same terms that we use for ministers in the church. When he calls them God's servants, he, say, he uses the word Diakonos, from which we get the word deacon that we use in the church for the office of deacon. Twice he uses diakonos, and once he uses leiturgos, which is can, <laughs> excuse me, can oftentimes be translated priests. And so it's, it's as if, again, that Paul wants people to understand that the work that is being done by these government officials, by these, by these people who are in civic and public authority in our lives, are again, they are working under the authority of God. 
That doesn't, again, please hear me right. That doesn't mean that every person who works in a place of authority in government or law enforcement or in any civic position whatsoever, it does not mean that they will necessarily be God-pleasing with what they do. But the point that Paul is making is that their authority is sourced in the person of God. Jesus addressed this himself. When he found himself standing before a particular government official charged with a crime, that person said to him, some of you know his name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said to him not long before he would eventually um, sentence Jesus to death. He said to him, well, you're not going to say anything? Don't you realize that I have the authority to either free you or kill you? Dave's paraphrase. And what did Jesus say? He didn't say you don't have any authority over me. He didn't say you're a, <laughs> you are a cowardly, vicious, spiteful, weak-spined, ungodly man. The only thing that Jesus said to him in response to him when Pilate said to him, don't you know I have the authority to free you or kill you? Jesus simply said, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. Sounds a lot like what Paul just told the Romans, doesn't it? Jesus understood what it meant. Our Savior understood what it meant to live under the leadership of one who was not a friend of God. He understood that his, the way in which he, uh, he operated his life, the way in which he lived his life, the way in which he related to that leader, even though that leader was evil, he understood that the way in which he related to him was something that was very important. So our, yes, our Savior even understands that. The authority of the state is one that comes from God. The second issue that Paul is going to write, talk about is the function of the state. The function of the state is this. Check out verses three and four. Beginning in verse three, it says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now, here's the thing. We know that this isn't always true, don't we? There are people in power who bring bad on those who are not doing anything wrong. We know that people in power, law enforcement officials, politicians, government officials of all sorts all around our world abuse their power for their own benefit. What Paul is stating is the ideal. The ideal is rulers should only be a terror to the ones who are doing bad. Check out the rest of it. Again, this is the ideal. And that's why we actually have a voice when this, isn't, when this ideal isn't being loved, lived up to. We have a voice to protest when this isn't being lived out. Check out verses three and four. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. In an ideal world, if you do what is good, there would be no reason you would be afraid of authority. That's not always the way it is in society. Verse four, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because it does not carry the sword for no reason. That reference to the sword, again, kind of looking in the context of what Paul said back in Romans 8 and what he's saying here probably means 
that the, uh, the, the, the state has the authority to bring life or death on someone. That's what it means by the fact that they carry the sword. And so Paul is very clear here that the function of the state should be, there should be two primary functions and those two primary functions kind of have two parts each. Number one, there's the relationship of the state to evil. The state should seek to restrain evil and the state should seek to punish evil, right? The state, unlike us as individuals, is an agent of justice. So the state should restrain evil, should seek to restrain evil, and should stay, uh, seek also to punish evil. Secondly, and I think Paul alludes, uh, there's kind of a, a little bit of a uh, veiled allusion to that as well. The state should also promote goodness and reward goodness. Because again, if we're doing that which was good, we have no fear. You know, how many people, how many people have told their, their kids this? Or how many people have had your parents tell you this? Don't do anything wrong and you won't have anything to worry about. Again, perfect world, ideal world. If every leader, if every ruler, if every governing authority did what they should do, this would be right and real and 100% accurate. And so when we live in relationship and understanding what the function of the state should be, the function of the state should be, we want to limit or restrain evil. We want to punish evil when it, when it you know, raises its ugly head. But we also want to promote and reward goodness at the same time. We know when we look at history in our own country, in our own state, even in our own city, we know when we look around the world, that doesn't always occur. And so, yes, are there times, even though we live under, we live in a voluntary place of submission to authority, would, there are times for us to stand up and say, this is not right. Someone shouldn't be mistreated because of their ethnicity, because of their race, because of their religious background, because of their gender, because of their socioeconomic status. That should not happen, right? We recognize that. So is it never wrong to speak out against authority? I'm not suggesting that. In fact, I believe that our, our own, the, the body of Christ has a rich history of many men and women who stood up against injustice when the state wasn't a terror to those who were doing bad, but a terror to those who were doing good. Is the state a dispenser of justice? Yes. Do we recognize that? Is that their role? Absolutely. And when the state begins to abuse that power, do we have as, a, as citizens in this state a right and maybe even a responsibility to speak up and say, this is not right? Our state is not functioning as it should? Yes, we do. But that doesn't change Again, that overarching principle, let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Their authority comes from God, and their function is to promote and reward goodness, to restrain and punish evil. So ultimately then, what's our relationship? As followers of Jesus, what's our relationship with the state? What are, what are, how do we live in this reality? Because again, are we citizens, first and foremost, of the kingdom of God? Yes. We are passers-by in this. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Am I a citizen of the, of the United States of America? Absolutely I am. But someday that identity, right, that identity will be gone. 
but I'll forever be a child of God. I'll be out, forever be a citizen of his kingdom. But in this, in this reality in which I live today, as a citizen of uh, currently in my life, this country, then I have a, a, a relationship with the state and I have a role and a responsibility in the state. And so Paul repeats himself again, very same word. Therefore, you must submit. He began, a, and this is only a couple of sentences, right? He began with submit. He finishes with submit. Why? Well, let's check that out. Look at those couple of verses. Oh, I lost my notes here real quick. Let me grab them. Let's look at those last couple of verses. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, again, probably referring to the wrath of God there, but also because of your conscience, meaning you have a conscientious recognition of the state's God-given role in your life. You have a conscientious understanding and acceptance that the state has a role in your life and you then are, remember what that word means, that word hubotasso, you are then embracing that voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. You are living in that way in your relationship with the state. Are there times where we must disobey the state? Are there times when we say, you know what? The state says this, the governing authorities say this, but this is in direct contradiction with what I know is God's will for my life. Well, the early church faced that. In Acts chapter five, Peter and John find themselves before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are governing authorities in the, for people in, in the, in, of the Jewish reality. And so they find themselves before those governing authorities because they have been teaching the, word, the, the gospel. They've been spreading the gospel of Jesus. Now, this is the second time they find themselves before the Sanhedrin. The first time, they brought him in. They told him not to talk, uh, talk about Jesus anymore. They gave him a good stern talking to. And they said, now, don't do that anymore. You know, kind of like, you know how parenting goes, right? The first time you give that good, strong lecture, you're real proud of yourself. You really feel like you made your points accurately and you really feel like you got somewhere with those kids. Well, the Sanhedrin didn't get anywhere with Peter and John. So they're back in front of the Sanhedrin again. In fact, they had been in jail and there was a miraculous escape from jail and they had a vision and, a, a light of a, of a, and had a, a divine message that said to them, hey, go out into the temple courts and start preaching the gospel again. So they did that. They found themselves back in front of the Sanhedrin again. And the Sanhedrin are basically like, hey, did you guys forget what we said? So in chapter 5, verse 27, it says this. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. That is the name of Jesus. He said to them. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Now that, those words, I don't want you to take those words and see and think that that's always the situation that you're going to have in your life. 
because that's a very unique thing where it is specifically related to the state, in a sense, the governing authorities forbidding those individuals from doing the very thing that God had commanded them to do. And Peter had to say, you know what? You're going to have to figure out whether we're right or wrong, but we've got to obey God rather than men. But remember, as we do that, remember that the scripture is so clear. In Romans chapter 12, it says this, just as the the chapter right before what we're looking at today, it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with, (laughs) live at peace with everyone. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, make every effort to live at peace with everyone. And so we don't need to always be looking for a fight. Peter and John weren't looking for a fight. The fight was brought to them. In the Sanhedrin, when they said, you can't talk about this anymore, they're like, sorry, but we've got to obey God. That meant their backs were going to get opened in just a few minutes. But the Bible says that they left that place after they had been flogged, rejoicing that they were able to suffer in the name and for the name of Jesus. Is that sometimes how it goes for believers in the relationship with the state? Yes. But that overarching principle of hupotasso coming up under that voluntary attitude of submission, that's what we're about. Now, I wish I could change that last little bit that was in there, but guess what? That means we got to pay. Somebody in our pre-service meeting said, can you wrap this all up by saying, uh, this means we don't have to pay taxes? And that's exactly the opposite of what's said here, right? Look, at, look if you would, verse six, and for this reason you pay taxes, since authorities are God's servants, there's that word again, continually attending to these tasks. Pay these obligations to everyone, taxes to those who you owe taxes. This, so that word is specifically a, a word that's used as tribute that was given to a foreign ruler in the ancient world. Tolls to those you owe owe tolls. Your uh, English translation may say revenue. It referred to indirect taxation, things like toll or custom duties that existed in the ancient world. That's why this particular translation chooses the word tolls there. Honor for those uh, to whom you owe, I'm sorry, respect to those who you owe respect and honor to those who you owe honor. So it's clear that not only do we have a tangible thing that we owe to those, right? Taxes, tolls, whether they be direct or indirect, but also we owe people respect and honor. So it's not just that we give our money, but that it's, we have a particular character orientation toward those who are in authority over us. Respect and honor. Now, folks, let me just get frank for just a second. Just give me like 30 seconds on this. I know, again, that in this room, there are varying opinions from who leads, uh, about who leads, who has led and does lead and will lead our state and our federal government. But followers of Jesus, listen to me. How you feel about a particular person does not give you the right to get on social media and with hatred and vitriol and a lack of honor and respect, 
use your keyboard courage to express in a cathartic manner everything you hate about him or her. Now, I'm, I'm just saying. You can have strongly held beliefs about, the, what, about a person's political policies. You can have strongly held beliefs and disagreements with things over what are very important issues in our society. And I'm speaking to the red and the blue here, guys. I'm speaking to the left and the right. Neither of us have the right to live outside the overarching parameters that Paul gives to all of us in these seven verses, right? Regardless of what our persuasion, regardless of our color. By color, I'm not talking about our skin color. I'm talking about your party color. I think you knew what I meant there. So, I made it through. I wasn't super passionate about doing it, but I hope God used this uh, half hour or so and these seven verses to remind you of something that is very key for us, I believe, in our culture today. How do we live in relationship with the state? Would you guys bow your heads? I want to pray. And then the worship team is going to close us with a song. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of these particular words that you inspired Paul to share with those Roman believers many, many years ago. We pray, God, that as uh, we learn to live under their authority, the authority of your word, that, would it, that it would impact us and how we live under the authority of the state in which we live. And God, I pray that most of all, that we would understand your heart, your heart for how we live, your heart for how we communicate, your heart for what we do, and that it would always be pleasing and, and, and uh, glorifying to you. Even as we deal with difficult discussions and conversations, even as we deal with that sometimes very divisive arguments that exist in the highest levels of our state, we pray that we would represent you well. And we could engage in a way that is both honest and forthright and passionate, but shows honor and respect and an attitude of submission. Because ultimately, in submitting to those who are placed in authority over us, scripture seems to indicate that we're submitting to you in your authority in our life. Amen.